Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week on Run Tell This, we're joined by journalist and podcast host Jamel Hill for a sprint through the headlines. Our take on why there's nothing like getting cussed out by church folk and what WAP and Dr. Seuss have in common. Hmm. Plus, Wes's interview with Dr. Fauci on one year of COVID and the fight for voting rights is more intense than ever. When we first started doing this show, every time we would come in, I would have a drink in my hand just as just as a prop, just just as a get the a conversation prop? started. Yeah, as a, just as a prop, just to, you know, loosen, loosen up the mood a little bit. Um, but lately, I've just been drinking water. But for this particular episode, I poured myself a little something. Just a little something in honor of our guest, who is one of my like top five top five favorite people on earth. Um, I've known Jay God pretty much since I've been in the business for like uh, like years and years and years, and we we had I had the pleasure of working with her at ESPN, and she's just a dope soul, and she's doing some of the greatest. Uh, not just journalism, but just she's she's become just an a, an icon, dare I say, un, unto herself in the last couple of years. So everybody, please welcome Miss Jamel Hill. Thank you for being here with us. I accept it. I, I receive it. But you are a bad host because you ain't tell me we was drinking, Keith. Do I need to dip and get some Hennessy right quick? You know, if you want to take a Hennessy break first of all, hold and up, go, hold go hold do up. that, we support it 100%. Like, you, you know... Wherever I am, there might be alcohol involved at some point. Did you really need to be told that? I don't think you really needed to be told that. I feel you like know, you knew. That is a fair point. You are absolutely right. Um, I didn't need to be told. I should have assumed it is my fault. But at some point, if why y'all talking, if y'all see me get up for a Hennessy break, then you know well, what it is. We, like we I said, we encourage, we encourage those. Um, welcome. Thank you for being here. I knew you were coming on. So my husband bought me the Support Black Journalist sweatshirt. I'm wearing the Jamel Hill merch. Um, I also love supporting black <laughs> journalists. So it's a it's a win-win. So we hope you feel feel welcome and at home here. I do. And thank you for your support. It's jamelstore.com. Uh Keith and Wes, I feel yeah, like I where's my sponsor? So I will I will be on my back. I will be <laughs> shooting you guys some in the in the mail. We should also note that our fifth and most adorable co-host is also here, Wes's puppy, Freddie Lowry. So if you hear what sounds like a herd of buffalo running around, that's what that is. I guess we'll start with kind of the the buzzy news of the week, um, which I thought was hilarious. This Kirk Franklin audio, uh, his son released the, the audio recording of Kirk Franklin, his father, cussing him out. And I think the son expected that public opinion would be against his father because he's a gospel icon and he says things that are quite unchurch-like. Jay, you, you see me around my sons. Like, oh yes. <laughs> you, you, you've seen this in action. So like when some when people were like, oh, Kirk Franklin cussed his sons out. And I was like, that sound like Tuesday. Like the, the, the initial response that I had was, was okay. Is it, was it like a little kid? Was he, was this like an abusive situation? You know, maybe think back maybe to like the Adrian Peterson situation from some, from some years ago. Like, are we talking about child abuse? And they're like, nah, this is a grown man. And so once we got past this is a grown man and I'm like, dog, like 
what kind of gump you got to be to be out here putting your putting putting recording your father like recording you recording your father we might we might have to shoot one we might <laughs> we might we might have to shoot one you you we me and you having a personal conversation i gave i gave you life i fed you but people don't understand that christians are the best customers like these are people <laughs> who have sin to the point where they had to come to the Lord. You know what I'm saying? That's what got them there is that they have experienced many people who are in church have experienced sin on a level you're not accustomed to. Facts. You know, it's like, yo, it's true. It's like they used to be the worst. They used to be, you know, which is what led them to Jesus. Okay. And I personally have been cussed out in the name of Jesus. I don't know about y'all, but I've been cussed out in the name of Jesus. I've been cussed out on the way to church. So I'm like, hey, dog, right? I've had my mama cuss me out and then say at the end of it, oh, Lord, just can you watch over my mouth? I'm like, but you didn't already cuss me out. So the time for that prayer was before you started cussing me out. And it is definitely true that when you are dealing with grown children, there's a different dynamic that takes place. Like, once you come at your dad a certain way, like they just going, you know, Keith, you just, you're going to have to get in there. <laughs> it is what it is, what it is, man. You bought, you, you talk to your, to your father, to your, to your black father, man, you, you, you bought, you bought all that. And you lucky. The only thing you had to put on the internet was the cuss words. Cause I'm trying to tell you, man, <laughs> look, that couldn't have, that couldn't have been in person. Nah. In person had to be on the phone. At long Kirk distance. Kirk would have got to stomping. <laughs> you know what I thought was really interesting about this is I always think about uh, Michael Harriet at The Root who taught, when he tweets and writes about Black famous people. And I'm convinced that Kirk Franklin might be the most Black famous person of our era currently. We're like A-lister in Black homes, but like your average white American might not know who they are. Because I think if Kirk Franklin was half a step more white America famous, this would have been everywhere, right? This was like a story that... I was seeing it on the black media and like on Twitter, but like I'm pretty positive there's not a piece at the New York Times about Kirk Franklin caught in potential domestic as versus like, if this was some other folks, it, it very well could have been in that conversation, right? And it was, and so it's just kind of funny to me sometimes when we get these news stories that are unquestionably, for those of us kind of in this specific type of no, unquestionably, us, but you see this, you see the Kirk Franklin video? And half of the world just has no idea what's even happened or what we're talking about. Yeah, I thought it was great because I loved black people's reaction to it. Like it was so clear that the son was setting his father up for a fail. Like, oh, I'm going to expose you now, you know, Mr. Christian. And black people were like, well, you know, basically what Keith said. So I love us for that. The only thing that disappointed me was that he didn't end his cuss out in Jesus name. So moving on to some more serious news. Uh, wait, this... wait, wait, before you, before, wait, you, before, okay. you get to, before you get to serious news, I need everybody's opinion on on the grammys and in particular the the meg and cardi performance well i didn't watch which seems to be typical because they had historic low ratings i think it was like half the number they had last year it was really poorly watched i didn't even realize it was happening till it was over okay um you know i I was I was here for it, of course, because I knew what was going to happen was was exactly what happened is that it was going to piss a bunch of people off who I love to see in a tizzy over such things. And, you know, um, in addition to the fact, just loving to see Megan and Cardi do their own do their thing. Um, but I, I knew the reaction, particularly with 
all the conversation about Dr. Seuss. Like, I'm so tired of hearing about Dr. Seuss, I can't even tell you. And sure enough, that crowd of, but y'all got what? But what about Dr. Seuss came running and charging right to this. And I was here for all of it because they just exposed that they don't know a WAP, have never had well, haven't WAP. some of them admitted that? Haven't something cer- like there's <laughs> like, a conservative who said that his wife um, is a gynecologist, <laughs> right? And she it was she Shapiro. told him that WAP was a sign of some kind of infection. And the internet's like, wait a minute, your wife told you that a woman who's aroused means there's something wrong with her. Clearly, you haven't had any firsthand experience with this. That's kind of sad. You have to ask your wife, the gynecologist, what does what does it mean when that happens? And she's like, no, baby, don't worry, that means something's terribly wrong. <laughs> that's not supposed to happen uh, Amara I'm with you I didn't I didn't watch in part because I just had other stuff going on um, and you know saw a bunch of the clips later on you know but but I also do think that there is you know we're in this moment where women are running hip-hop across I mean like unquestionably uh, 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 not that there have not always been women superstars in hip-hop um, really important voices and really important artists. But we're in this moment where if you look at the upper echelon, the top tier of active hip hop artists dominating the radio, you're talking about Cardi B, you're talking about Nicki Minaj, you're talking about, um, you know, like it, it, uh, Megan Thee Stallion. And so I do think that it's really interesting how much we are now having this conversation about policing the sexuality of it. And, you know, like hip hop has always been really vulgar um, or parts of hip hop have always been really vulgar. Um, but there is kind of a pearl clutching that comes sometimes with women talking about these things the same way that every dude who's ever had a top 40 rap hit has talked about um, in increasing detail, right? And and so it is kind of interesting to watch the kind of cultural freak out about this, especially because the messengers here are women and they're talking openly and freely about their own sexuality and like what they want and what they don't want. And we're just, I think, very used to men doing that. Um, but not necessarily to women using the same level of vulgarity, vulgarity in at least in our music. And some of us are old enough to remember when they tried to cancel hip hop in the 90s. A- ask Uncle Luke about this. Like, we've seen this before. Okay. Two Live Crew. It was a whole movement. Tipper Gore, Dorothy Tucker, like all of them, uh, they were trying to cancel hip hop. And it was just like, okay, we, I thought we already lived through this moment before. And um, I, I just think it's funny how, to, much to Wesley's point, is that whenever women especially black women show any kind of agency or empowerment related to their own bodies it seems to piss off the world and you know it's they wop they can do whatever they want with it like I'm, like including, her, including wop, her wop it, don't right? make you right include talk about it it's still it's yours right so but keith though he chimed in which was funny because he was like because i you know they're trying to say that dr seuss isn't allowed in schools but yet Wappy is like there's a whole wop curriculum that we don't know about i'm like <laughs> What what second what second grader learning about WAP? Like that's not happening, all right. But Keith brought up a very good point, which was that in college he felt like he was he did know about a WAP curriculum. There, which there would was, be yeah, there was one. there was a there was a certain there were there were certain <laughs> undergraduate experiences in which you could have you could have become a WAPologist. Um, <laughs> did you and, get credit for that? Was that I got a lot of credit for that? I got I got the little pin. There's no equivalence between quote unquote vulgarity and racism. Can we just agree that those are not equivalent? That right. somebody sharing too much about their sexuality is nowhere near equivalent to racist caricatures and drawings that are intended for children. Like, no, they're, they're not, the, not. They're in not the same the, category. They're not the same at all because you can't, you can't per se demean yourself by talking about your own sexuality. The idea that you would that you would put forth publicly 
um, you know, your own sexual exploits, your own, your own desires, your own, you know, your own sexuality in whatever way you choose to exploit it, um, that in it, that in and of itself is not a demeaning thing. Whereas being racist towards another person is demeaning in and of itself. Like the act, the, the act of drawing a racist cartoon is meant to demean another person. But like, just on the merits of the performance, I was kind of like, meh. I didn't, I didn't watch it live. I didn't, I didn't see it live. I, I, I heard about it afterwards and it was a lot of controversy. People were tweeting about it. So of course, for research purposes, I needed to <laughs> engage. I needed to engage in a little bit of journal, in an act of journalism. So I went to, I went to YouTube and I found it and I took out my notebook and I was looking for like, I was looking for the thing that was so over the top that was like, oh my God, why are people talking about this? And, and what I walked away with was like, I don't see more than this at a at an average strip club on a Thursday. Like this is this yeah, is like how most, many, most how many, people aren't seeing most people aren't at a strip club on a Thursday. They're not seeing Okay, well maybe they seen it on maybe they saw it on Saturday. Whatever they do, <laughs> you see you've seen it. My point my point is that there's there's nothing as far as as far as like shock value, like if the point of that performance was to was to go for shock value, it fell way short. I'm just saying that it was pretty regular in terms of what we get out of hip hop artists, particularly female hip hop artists in, in this era, in a way that I kind of can't believe that people were even talking about it as much as they are. Um, well, on that note, can you help us make a graceful segue from WAP to one year of COVID deaths? Because that's what we're talking about next. I can. So since you brought up a... WAP. <laughs> I can help you make a make a graceful segue from from WAP, to, from WAP to COVID. So we find ourselves a year into this pandemic, still trying to figure out how we can balance the loss of our best WAP lives with the need for social distancing. Wesley Lowry had a conversation on this very topic and many others with, with none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci himself. I would love to know Dr. Fauci's thoughts on WAP. I really yeah, know. Dr. Know. Fauci, I talked about I'm sure a lot Dr. of things. Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci done, bruh. In medical all right, school? All right, all right, all right. This train is going so far <laughs> off the tracks. Wes, please. Can, can, you're the youngest, but can you be the grown up in the room? Yeah, I, I, I got you. We talked about a lot of topics, not quite that one. Um, but but what, I will, but what I will say is I think one of the reasons that song and everything around it uh, so blew up this year in part was we were all looking for kind of collective cultural touchstones. And I was talking to someone yesterday about MJ, The Last Dance, and like remembering how when that dropped right at the beginning of porn, you know, like that we all did need these kind of collective things to get invested in, whether it be culture war or something else, because this year was crazy. Um, so yeah, you know, I talked with uh, Dr. Fauci uh, a few weeks back in the run-up to the anniversary of the COVID pandemic reaching uh, the United States. And part of the reason I talked to him was because I was working on a segment about healthcare workers and PTSD and how much uh, they've all gone through in this last year. Um, but we talked pretty widely. We talked about a ton of different things. You know, we talked about the Trump administration versus the Biden administration. And he hasn't made any secret that he much prefers working with the Biden administration than he did the Trump administration. You're obviously alluding to former President Trump. Do you think his behavior his messaging from the White House led to additional Americans dying. I would just go back and say, if we didn't have that divisiveness and that pushing of divisiveness, we would have done much better. We talked about 
uh, the disparities um, and about how Black Americans have been hit so much harder by this pandemic than other places. And he was like, look, it's obvious that we've built a structure that's inequitable. Black Americans are handed the shorthand of the stick and then a pandemic comes along and it takes advantage of that. Um, and, then, and then we also talked about what's next, right? We talked about vaccines. We talked about the variants, about where things are going. And what him and the healthcare workers I, were talk, I was talking to said, they were just so insistent, like they really need people to get vaccinated. That the folks we were talking to in Georgia, the healthcare workers, the nurses and doctors I was talking to in Georgia, they just came off of a, uh, a, a surge, right? That the holidays were really rough for them. And so the, some of the hospitals I went to, January was the deadliest month they've had of the entire pandemic. Um, and so what people are concerned about is that if um, people get lax because the va- because we feel like the end is in sight, people are getting vaccinated, it's nice outside, let's go do our thing, but we're not actually all vaccinated, we're all kind of not following the rules, even though we haven't gotten the shot, a lot of the healthcare workers I was talking to are concerned that they might have another month like January that's just as deadly as some of the worst months they've ever seen. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because I was talking to my father who's um, 81. So he was born during World War II and remembers um, the tail end of the war. And he said to me that the deadliest part of a war for civilians is not the middle, it's the beginning and the end. It's before they have managed to make an escape and it's the end when people start to return home and find themselves still in dangerous way. And he was making that comparison to COVID saying that, you know, exactly what what you were hearing from healthcare workers is that everybody's ready for this to be over, right? We're so over it. And now people will have one vaccine shot and feel kind of protected and free to go out and everybody wants to go out. So I I think there is a big concern that we're not out of the woods yet, but a lot of people are going to start acting like we're out of the woods. Um, One of the things that, that has surprised me so much about this last year, I remember when the when the pandemic first started, hearing the estimates of one to 200,000 deaths, that the estimates at that time were that COVID was going to kill one to 200,000 people. And I remember at that time thinking to myself, that's not gonna happen. We're never gonna get to that point. Surely someone somewhere will do something. The government will intervene, science will intervene. Somehow we will prevent that number of deaths. 200,000 seemed unimaginable to me. And now we're in excess of 500,000. Um, Wes, did Dr. Fauci have anything to say about the number of deaths? I mean, first of all, how could the estimates have been so far off? And second of all, how much worse is it expected to get? Well, yes, I asked him about that because he was the one who said it might be 200,000 deaths. And people were like, what? Anthony Fauci says it could be this many. And now we're at over half a million, right? It's more than double this estimate that we all thought was crazy at the time. And he was saying, right, that like America didn't need to lead the world in COVID deaths. Like there was nothing particular about our country that would have made us more susceptible or make it more deadly other than the fact that we really came out of the gate sloppy on this. There was mixed messaging. Different states were doing different things. There were the example he gave was, you know, they put out this phased plan. We can reopen these things on these days and these things on on this other day. And the next day, the president of the United States came out and said, liberate Virginia, liberate Michigan. Right. That there was you think about COVID so much of it's voluntary. Right. We choose to wear a mask or we don't. We choose not to go to that dinner or we do. And if we remember back to where we were a year ago, it was a lot of people being like, is this really that bad? Do I really have to do this? There were whole states that weren't locking down anything. And that really did pad the number of deaths that we saw. We were going to talk about Cuomo, but I, I do we want to talk about Cuomo? Does anyone outside of New York care about this Cuomo scandal? I think it's obvious that there is a huge failure in leadership. It's obvious he needs to resign. 
But I think part of the reason why there is maybe seemingly a, a lack of interest from the rest of the country is because it's not like people inside the party aren't calling for this. Like there's no resistance on them among the Democrats. I mean, AOC has said he's needed to resign. Whereas as you guys know, frequently what happens when it's, we're dealing with conservatives and Republicans, they rally around bullshit, but there's no, there's no tension point here. No, I don't think anybody is wildly disagreeing that Andrew Cuomo shouldn't resign. Right. It's like, He's the only one disagreeing. It's like, bro, you need to walk away. Like, it kind of is what it is. So I think that's part of it. Um, and maybe some of it, too, is now that we have gotten this taste of freedom that's coming from COVID. Everybody's like, damn, Andrew Cuomo, I'm trying to be outside next week. I don't know what he's doing. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to sit inside a restaurant. Like, okay. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that's some of it. Like, I think there is a certain amount of, of fatigue mentally that people have experienced Um and, you know, just kind of being bogged down with, okay, today's shitty politician is who? Oh, it's you now? All right, whatever. People outside of New York care because he he took this mantle of sort of America's mayor, not quite mayor, but but governor um, at, in the early part of the pandemic, right? So his, a lot of people's relationship. Now, if you spent time in, in the New York area, if you, you know, if you've been around New York or if you just sort of, are, like I said, are a political junkie, then people then people may know him. But for a lot of people, the introduction to Andrew Cuomo was when he became this figure who who positioned himself as the polar opposite of Donald Trump at the beginning of the pandemic. So when we weren't when we were either getting just batshit crazy statements, you know, drink bleach, inject, you know, <laughs> inject cleaning solution you know, you don't need to wear a mask, continue to shake hands. Like when, when that was coming from the White House, the daily COVID updates from New York, which remember at the time, New York was the epi epicenter early on. So Cuomo's daily briefings became almost required viewing nationally. People nationally were watching to hear what he was saying to get a sense of calm and to get a sense of sanity in the middle of this crisis that none of us have never experienced before. A lot of people started to talk about whether or not this was somebody who in 2024 could be a, could be a candidate, um, whether or not this was somebody who we could who we could look, you know, maybe either in the either in the U.S. Senate or running for running for the presidency. So I do think that people paid attention are, are paying attention to, to Andrew Cuomo and paying attention to who he is with the critical eye that would be that should be reserved for people who have higher political aspirations. Is it fair to compare this to Rudy Giuliani? Only in this sense. It's like, remember that moment where Rudy Giuliani was, he was also considered to be America's mayor and because of how his response to 9-11 and just how, you know, New York, the Yankees themselves, everybody galvanized around them. And then fast forward years later, we're like, oh, this dude is an asshole. <laughs> He's like, he, he is... Like one of the worst human beings of all time. Is it fair, you think, to draw those comparisons and be like, well, maybe we should be a little bit more careful in terms of you having a competent press conference doesn't necessarily mean that you're A, a good person or a good politician. You know what I'm saying? We, we tend to overly inflate those things because they come at a time of trauma. Like you mentioned, at that point, we were just trying to get competent information. And it wasn't coming from 
the alleged highest leader in the land. Definitely. You know, he was, I definitely think Cuomo unquestionably in this last year, in the context of this last year, was more than a little bit media creation, right? Obviously, he was getting a lot of airtime on CNN where his brother was a host and there was a big discussion of whether or not they should even be doing that. It was a time where the White House was not doing regular press conferences or news conferences to give updates about COVID. And when they did, they often looked like, you know, hostage videos. You had Fauci standing in the back, trying not to laugh, as Trump said, whatever. You know, and so I do understand why not just left-leaning residents and citizens, but also even members of the media who wanted some level of normalcy. They wanted that. I mean, that's one of the biggest secrets about I think the media is not necessarily that there's particular bias in one direction or the other, but that there's a bias towards normacy and like the way the system's supposed to work. And they're supposed to come to a press conference and tell us the answers. And this is, and so when Cuomo was one of the only people presenting it, especially given that New York City was the epicenter, you do kind of see how he became one of the faces of this. And, you know, with pride comes the fall, as my mother would say, right? That like, that, all right, you put yourself out there as as COVID czar and suddenly people are going to, you know, famously publishing a book about how he defeated COVID while the pandemic's still raging. That is going to make some people not very happy. And we have to remember this, these allegations started in part because of a different scandal about the nursing home deaths you know, that it started because people were being critical of him and his leadership in COVID. And that was part of the reason that some of these women said, oh, well, by the way, since we're finally ready to talk about Andrew Cuomo, let me tell you X, Y, and Z. Today, we want to talk a bit about what I think is one of the most important issues in the country in this moment, which is the right to the ballot box. We are seeing um, in response to a presidential election in which Black voters showed up across the country, in which Black voters helped flip a state like Georgia um, and, and help give the White House and the Senate back to the Democrats and the Republicans, we're seeing a wave that some experts have said is unlike nothing since the Jim Crow era in terms of legislation to roll back access to the ballot box. And this is going to be a major question moving forward, both which legislation passes in various states, as well as what role the Supreme Court might play in terms of allowing some of these uh, stances to carry forward um, or in shutting some of them down. A third dynamic there is obviously that there is proposed voting rights legislation that Democratic politicians are considering that has passed the House, that there's going to be a debate in the Senate, um, and an open debate about whether or not Democrats will be able to get any of that legislation through if they keep the 60-vote filibuster in place. And so that was a bunch of different things. But let's talk a little bit about the state of play as it relates to voting rights, to voting access, and to voting suppression. Well, what's interesting is we seem to have this showdown that's being set up between the courts and the legislative branches of government. Um, and what's also interesting is that, you know, for, for so long in this country, there really was minority rule. You know, it wasn't really a democracy until the Voting Rights Act, um, when you started to get wider access to the ballot box among all people. And what we've been seeing since the Voting Rights Act is an effort to return to that minority rule. And when you look at voting patterns, you can see why. You know, Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight elections, even though in two of those cases, they still won the presidency thanks to the Electoral College. So really there is the sense that they can't win on a level playing field. They can't win if everybody has easy access to the ballot and equal access to the ballot. The only way that they can win is by restricting access to the ballot, which is, there's actually a historical precedent for that. That's the way this country was founded. 
And they're actually out loud, like they're, they're actually now saying that part out loud. Like that's the thing. So we've, we've come to, to this point where, you know, before there was this talk for the last several years have been these talking points and this, you know, this, this drumbeat of, you know, we need to, we need to ensure the integrity of the election. We need to make sure that there isn't voter fraud. We need to, we need to make sure there's voter ID, all, all of those things. They were they were vapid talking points. There was no factual basis for for any of those things. We know that that voter fraud um, in in any form is is minute, whether it happens at the local level, the state level or, or in presidential elections. Like it's a thing that rarely ever happens, um, you know, with, that happens with with infrequent uh, regularity. Right. So now we've reached a place where they've stopped pretending that this is about voter fraud. And in the last couple, in the last few weeks, you've heard several prominent Republicans say, you know, say out loud that the point of all this is that Republicans will never win if everybody's, if, if everyone has equal and unfettered access to the vote. Like they're not even pretending anymore that this is about keeping the wrong people from voting or keeping dead people from voting or keeping, you know, it's, it's about, demographics in this country now suggest not not now suggest that we can't win if you let everybody have a have a fair shake at voting if you if you open it up and just make it what it's supposed to be we can't win what that what that also is is an admission that this is a party that's lost lost its way if it if it ever had a way it doesn't it doesn't have a way anymore right like if if the idea is you know you can't win and you're admitting out loud that you can't win unless you prevent certain people from accessing the, the, the ballot box. What you're really, say, really saying is we know we don't have a compelling case based on policy that will carry the day over our opponents in the event everyone is given is given equal access to, to this. Right. Like we just we can't sell it. But it but it also hints at the the crisis that this party is in and the fact that they're basically saying rather than actually compete for your votes rather than recreate a vision of the future because the democrats had to go through that too and they're not perfect at it but they did have to recreate a new vision because they realized the base of their party the future was tied to people of color um, you know, women and, and everybody, all the marginalized communities is tied to their success. So they had no choice and they decided to recreate that vision. So to me, what Republicans are ultimately saying, and if I could ever be in the room with one of them for more than a few minutes, I could probably <laughs> not all of them, but most of them, I would probably say this to them is that if you are so if you are so uh, convinced that your idea of America is better, then why can't you sell it to more people? Why don't more people buy in? And so they're basically saying we not only don't want to compete for your votes, we we are not smart enough to come up with a new vision that will attract people to our party, which to me was always the problem when it came to, say, luring black voters. Black people are naturally much more conservative than people ever imagined. Right. And we we all know this. But yet they never understood the reason we don't fuck with y'all is the racism. Y'all can't even do basic it's shit. It's racism. So if you could have just gotten a handle on that part, you probably would have more black people who are Republican um, than you do at current at, at where it is currently. And so my frustration 
with them is that I can't stand people who shit on ideas but don't have a better one. They sat up there and sh- they shit on all the ideas. They shitting on healthcare, saying, hey, we got a better. Where's your plan? Y'all can't even come up with a plan. Y'all had four years. You had control of everything. No plan, no policy, nothing. And you shocked that people don't want to fuck with you because you have nothing other than the racism and the white supremacy. That's your selling point. So, yeah, yes, but look how well that's done for them lately. And I think that's the problem. But it's, but it's a lo- was- it's a losing proposition because and it's not because racism is going away. It's just because this momentum, this train of things that are happening, they can't stop it. And there's nothing they could do about it. So all they've chosen, they own a Titanic still playing the keyboard. Fine. But I don't think (laughs) they see that as the Titanic. I think they look at the last election and they say, we saw the highest voter turnout that we have seen ever for a Republican candidate. We didn't do as badly in congressional races or in state races as we expected to or should have given the circumstances. And so as opposed to a few years ago where it really felt like the Republican Party was doing this kind of postmortem, they were looking at the party, they were doing this soul searching, they were trying to find a way to expand the tent so that it would include more people, it would include more minorities to be a little bit more progressive. And when Trump came along with this train and his 70 million followers, they said, wait a minute, we can still get numbers with a policy that is racist and based on white supremacy. They don't have to change. So, but here's the problem with that, Mara. And I think you make, I think you make a great point. The problem with that is when you get more voters than any other candidate in your party's history has ever gotten, and you still lost the presidency, and you still lost the Senate, there's a problem. So what is that saying about your message when you went, or, or what is that saying about demographic trends when the best you've ever done is still not good enough. What I'm curious is to is to like, where do they go from here? Because as was mentioned, they had millions of people who still, despite all the things that happened with Donald Trump, said, you know what? Another round, <laughs> right? So you have that part of it. And I just don't know what their game plan can be going forward, except for to dig down further into dumb shit like Dr. Seuss and these kind of issues. And I'm wondering the people who they're appealing to now, they're so extreme that that's why I said that the future of this party is just not great, despite what the last election showed. And I understand that the numbers showed that this is still appealing to people on some level, but I, I just think the extinction is like sort of inevitable. Now, I don't know what it, the new layer will be, but unless they get someone who is another Ronald Reagan, when I say another Ronald Reagan, I mean somebody who is, uh, I wouldn't even call him racist light, honestly, but just isn't that big of, isn't as big of an asshole because I feel like a new rejuvenation of this is coming, right? That's why it's very interesting looking at Nikki Haley, who is clearly positioning herself to run because they like oh we got a woman and she's ethnic like and she doesn't immediately turn off every person around her you know her past is relatively clean but she'll say the same shit that Donald Trump says but she'll be in a better package but that better package I don't know is going to appeal to the level of extremism that they've allowed into the party that is now controlling the party and Donald Trump by the way not real good at lending the spotlight to somebody else Not real good at that. He still wants to run the party. So unless you get like, I just, it feels like they're out of chess moves. That's what it feels like to me. And of course, right now, what they're doing is relying on 
state by state, the holes they have in particular states, but nationally, I just don't think this party has anywhere to go. And I don't think ultimately a lot of this voter suppression shit is going to work. Now, that being said, they backed themselves in the corner. It just takes one or two moves to checkmate them. My other question would be, do the Democrats have the guts to do it? Because I, I, I and that's, that's the, the only thing that could keep them in the game is prevent defense, which the Democrats seem to be great at. And I'm just like, they just going to run prevent. I'm like, okay, the, but the only thing prevent defense prevents from happening is what? It, winning. <laughs> A win. Cause I'm just A like, win. you got to go for the jugular now that you have all the control and cut this party at the knees. But it feels like too many of the establishment Democrats, their idea of what a Republican is, that shit don't exist anymore. And they don't seem to get the memo of this. Joe Biden doesn't understand there is no unity. Chuck Schumer, there's no unity. Like Mitch McConnell has, he took his hold and power on this party and on this Senate. And he had no, no reluctance whatsoever, but to cut y'all, but to continue to cut y'all at the knee. So I do not understand why they don't reciprocate. Don't get it. Because that's what they should be doing. It's trying to kill this party and bury it. Well, we're going to let you have the last word on that, Jamel. Thank you for joining us. I know you have a lot going on. Where can people find you and, and all the projects that you're working on? I'm not real creative. So I'm Jamel Hill across all social channels. And if you would dare, please check out my podcast. Jamel Hill is Unbothered. I write for The Atlantic as well. So you can check out some of my pieces um, in there. But yeah, really excited about this week's interview. One of my favorite Superhero movies in Dark Knight Rises, or um, I should say comic book movies, because Batman is not a superhero. And yes, I'm dying on this hill. Don't date. Don't know. Well, he's, he's a rich guy. He's a rich guy. With exactly. A As he even said he himself. No superpowers. Exactly. He said himself. What's your superpower? Money. He said it himself. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, at any rate, um, but got Anthony Mackie on the podcast this week to discuss uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is dropping on Disney on Friday. So I'm super excited about that. But uh, it was great to be with you all to reconnect uh, with my man, Keith, two E's, one F. <laughs> two E's, one F. <laughs> two E's, one F. And of course you, Wes. And, and I, we got you drinking it. Yes. Before five. You got me. My husband's always a win. It is. I, my husband, when he gets home, he's going to be like, what have you been doing for the last hour? Right. <laughs> I'm going to tell him I was working. I don't know if he's going to believe it. <laughs> You didn't even mention the TV show. Didn't you got mention podcasts. The TV show. Yes. You got you you, you got a you got a TV show. And then you got some other projects that are that are happening that are that that, that you yeah, didn't talk about. Got a production about. company. Book, yeah. Right? Uh yes, got a memoir coming out in twenty twenty two. Got a production company where we have um some things in the works, including a comedy series that we're executive producing with Gabrielle Union, so uh for showtime. So um yeah, I, I, you know, I'm busy. All that means is I got a lot of bills to pay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Book busy and blessed. People don't realize that being the boss means just yet you have to pay a lot of invoices. Mm -hmm. That's what that means. <laughs> um, well, thank you again for your time. We know you're busy. We appreciate the time you have shared with us today. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.